We are continu continuing in Isaiah, so turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 2 this morning. Uh, and I did think while we were singing, uh, we have a bunch of youth and volunteers at a youth retreat this morning, so they'll be finishing up too. Uh, I am grateful that God is at work there, just as He would be at work among us this morning. <clears throat> uh, as we begin, uh, we're going to continue to ask the question that we have been asking, and we told you we would ask throughout the book of Isaiah, which is, where do we place our hope? In another sense, you could ask it, where do we get our security from? Our sense of stability, our identity. Our church answer would be God. And at some level, that's true. But I know what's really true. If you're like me, which I think you are, your natural bent, your natural sense is to get your worth and your value and your significance and your security from what I call pleasant things, from my performance, from my success, from what others think of me, and the list could go on, on, and on. And the church and the world is full of people who have attained everything they wanted, and yet, as Alex Tuckerville said in the 1830s, they still experience a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants of America in the midst of their abundance because the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And if that's true in the 1830s, certainly is true in 2016. And I know it to be true when I was the chaplain of the Cincinnati Bengals and Reds for six years. I was in that world of abundance. Men and women who had, men and families who had fame and fortune and, and athletic proudness, everything you could imagine. And yet when I met with these men one-on-one, -on -one, there was this strange melancholy that haunted them that something of this world could not satisfy. They were some of the most dissatisfied people I'd ever come in contact with. And I think that's what tells us is the more we have, the least we're satisfied. When we place our hope in these things, whatever those things are, there are two things for certain that I can tell you and me what happens. The first is we become idolatrous, simply meaning we take some incomplete joy of this world and we build our entire life on it. Or secondly, I can tell you what happens is our intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ, our heart-to-heart intimacy, not our rule-keeping, not our morality, but our heart-to-heart -heart intimacy and connection with the Lord Jesus Christ goes on life support. The remedy to this is not to improve the performance of our idols, <laughs> but for God to become the sole source of our hope. And to do that, we need God to produce in us what only he can produce, and that is humility. And here's the reason. Real biblical hope in God and real biblical humility produced by God go hand in hand. And what I mean by that is there's a correlation. There's a correlation between hope 
and humility to, as Isaiah wants us to do and wants the people of God to do, to place our soul hope in God alone for satisfaction for all things. And here's the correlation. Humility makes us need God, and when we need God, we place our hope and trust in Him. Pride, the opposite of humility, makes us trust, therefore, in our what? Selves. So see the correlation that goes along, and that's what Isaiah is addressing here. <clears throat> the big idea this morning, I'll lay it out for you, is when hope in God replaces our false securities and humility replaces our pride, then the Lord alone is exalted in our hearts. That's where Isaiah is taking us this morning. And Isaiah 2, 5 through 21 actually helps us do that. It helps us set our hearts on God, and it does so by the three points that I've laid out this morning. It does so by it tells us or reminds us about the only hope that really matters. And then secondly, it warns us or, or gives us a description of, or if you would, pulls back the curtain and lets us see <laughs> the hope of the world that never satisfies. And then thirdly, it tells us about this way back. How do we get back to the only hope that matters when we go astray, not if? And so it's a beautiful passage this morning uh, in this ancient text of Isaiah. So let's first look at <clears throat> the only hope <clears throat> that matters. The only hope that matters. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> Isaiah writes, O house of Jacob, come, <clears throat> excuse me, let us walk in the light of the Lord. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. To properly understand verse 5, which is really a transitional verse from the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 2, we have to go back and take a quick look at Isaiah 1 through 4. So you can read those on your own, <clears throat> but basically <clears throat> in Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, Isaiah has called this picture that he paints with those four verses an ideal Jerusalem or Judea. It is the way things should be. As a matter of fact, it's a future prediction of the way things will be. It is the reality of the way things will be one day. A worldwide miracle, as a writer put it. As the nations gladly hurry to worship God and learn his ways, the miracle began at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. The miracle is take place in, taking place even as I speak, and <clears throat> it will continue to take place until it culminates in the last days Will there be massive amounts of conversions to Christ and then Christ will return himself. The results, it tells us in verses 1 through 4, it will be justice and peace. Now you think of the world we live in. Is there anything more needed than justice <clears throat> and peace? And so here's what Isaiah does in verse 5. After giving us a picture of the future in verses 1 through 4, a picture of the ideal Judah or Jerusalem, Isaiah in verse 5 tells us, in light of what God is going to do in the future, even among the Gentiles, where they all come to the mountain of the Lord and worship, that should be the smelling salts to wake you and I up that we would live in light of that. Practically put, let the future promises of God have their full impact on us now. 
or let the future align us to the present. There's going to be the day when the Lord returns. Let that affect how we live now. now. And then he uses this phrase, the light of the Lord. As I did a little study on that phrase, what does it mean to walk in obedience in the light of the Lord? <clears throat> you really get two pictures here. One is very familiar passage in Psalms 119, 105, where it says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When it says walk in the light of the Lord and obedience to the light of the Lord, it's not what you and I think about the Lord. It's not what you and I come up with. It's what you, not you, what you and I invent. It is according to his word. So it takes us back to his word. Then there's another picture in Isaiah 51.4, and it says, I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. I will set my justice. So it means walking in a way that's aligned with his word. And when we do that, it will bring justice. Now, who, who modeled that more than anyone? Who's that a picture of? When you put the word incarnate, Christ, and what he did to bring justice to make all things right and will make all things right, it is a picture of him. <clears throat> Isaiah is saying this really is the only hope that matters. It is the only hope that will satisfy the human heart. Intimacy with the living God based on submitting our lives in humility to his word. That is what he's calling us to. In light of what the future will be, it's going to come. You might as well start living like that now. But we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. The come, let us reason together, says the Lord, and Isaiah 118 has been dismissed. The come, come to the Lord, to the mountain of the Lord, and Isaiah 2, 3 has been ignored. And now this plea from Isaiah in verse 5, this plea to come and walk in obedience in the light of the Lord has not been heard. It has fallen on deaf ears. What is the reason? Here's the question. Why has Judah responded as if they are deaf? Why have they had this frigid response to God's plea three times already in the first two chapters of Isaiah? The Lord says, come, and they have not heard, and they did not obey. Why? With a very intense emotion, Isaiah the prophet makes a pivot, and he is not pleased, and he tells us why. He tells us why in these next four verses of 6 through 9. <clears throat> in these verses of 6 through 9, we will notice there are four times the word full or filled was used. We see that the people of God are filled with ungodly influences from the east. Verse 6. Verse 7, it says they are filled with silver and gold. Verse 8 says they are filled with idols, 8a. And then 8b says ultimately they are filled with themselves. So what I, Isaiah has done here, he has painted for us in the first four verses 
this picture, if you would, of this ideal Judah, the ideal picture of the people of God. And here in verses 6 through 9, he paints for us a picture of not ideal Jerusalem or Judah, but actual Judah. (laughs) This is what it looks like to be the people of God, and here's what actually the people of God are living like, and the two cannot be further apart. He says in verse 5, Come walk in the light of obedience to the Lord, because then there is no hope in the way you are presently living. It is destruction. It will destroy your life. It will not bring fruit. You will have regrets. Isaiah here is presenting to us what us foolish humans do When we don't walk in the light of the Lord, we privately exalt ourselves, which causes destruction. One of my greatest fears, knowing that I am a sinful man, I remember thinking early from the day of Christ, I came to Christ 34 years ago, was that I would not blow my own leg off (laughs) with my stupidity and sin. Sin, I knew I would, world, flesh, and devil attacking me. I get all that, but that I would simply walk in a way that it would destroy my own life, my family, my integrity. And that's what is happening here. Verse 6 uses this phrase full of things from the East. (laughs) They had borrowed and are practicing occult, practicing the occult practices of the neighboring nations of Assyria and the Babylonians. It uses this phrase, fortune tellers like the Philistines, being able to control the future by the power of demons of sorcery. They they uses this phrase in verse 6, strike hands with the children of foreigners. It is not an anti-immigrant statement. It's not a racist statement. I actually had very dumb people in my family, this is where I come from, that would use statements like this to say that blacks and whites couldn't marry. Unbiblical and dumb. This is not an anti-immigrant statement. This is a God's people that are living like pagans. That God's people and people who don't know God, their lives look the same. It is light and dark becoming, you can't tell the difference between light and dark. Verse 7 says, the land is filled with wealth and military might. This is not an anti-wealth and anti-military statement. But it is a straight shooting condemnation of what their hearts are placing their hope in. In economic, it is economic and military idolatry. That their worth and security, and their value, and their confidence is what they are looking to, to give them protection in this life. It's what makes them secure. They have forgotten, the people of God have forgotten Hosea's words in 2.8, Hosea 2.8. And she did not know that it was I, speaking of the Lord, who gave her Judah, her grain, her wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used not for the glory of God, but for the glory of Baal, it says. They forgot. We forget Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5. What do you have that you did not receive from God? 
<laughs> if you've ever struggled with generosity, there's your question. What did you have that you did not receive from God? If you've ever struggled with pride, there's your question. What do you have that you did not re receive from God? But we say things like, I have the great American work ethic. That's why I am who I am. Who lets you breathe to work? That's the point. Verse 8 <clears throat> describes them as being filled with idols. <clears throat> I, I teared up this week, which I'm sure is no surprise to y'all. As I get older, I cry easier and more. But I, I, part of me was tearing up with verse 8, and part of me was laughing. <laughs> if it weren't so sad, it would be hilarious. The very people who had seen God lead them via day with a cloud and by fire by night, <clears throat> the same people who had provided food for them by a quail and water every morning, all they had to do was go pick up. The same God <clears throat> who split the sea, literally, to protect them from their enemies. <clears throat> These people, it says, literally bowed down and worshiped the things that their fragile fingers had made. When we put the light on that, <laughs> and it's open, and we're sane, and we're together as God's people, that looks so untempting, so nasty, so antithetical to who we want to be as a people of God, does it not? But quietly in the dark, in our own hearts, we embrace the same thing. And then verse 9 is, the, is the, the hammer here. Verse 9 reads, Therefore man is humbled, and each one is brought low. And Isaiah says some words that are rarely said in Scripture. Do not forgive them. This humbling here is not a saving kind of humility, but it means that sin dehumanizes us. You and I who are made in the very image of God become opposite of what God intended us to look like. A.W. Tozer put it this way, that which we worship, we become more like. Humans, he's saying here, Isaiah, made by God who worship themselves, who think for themselves, who live for themselves, don't represent or look like God intended them to look. <clears throat> and he uses this phrase, do not forgive them. And what it shows us is Isaiah's deep personal pain about his own people and how they are living opposite of what God intended. <clears throat> it also, I think, exposes for us how serious sin is. Sin cannot be just forgotten. It cannot be swept under the rug. Sin against a holy God is offensive. It can't be just a second thought. Sin must be punished. And if sin is not punished, then God is not just. And if God is not just, he is not perfect. And if he's not perfect and without sin, he's certainly not uh, worthy of our worship in our very lives. That's the thought here. 
That's why the cross is so crucial that in the midst of our sin, God in his mercy punished his son so that he would not have to punish us. It goes back to that. And I'll say for us as a believer, I want to make sure we're clear here. Some of us condemn ourselves. Condemnation, there's no one who is in Christ who is condemned. And I say that because we mix up these two very things, the difference between fellowship or intimacy with God and the difference between knowing Christ and having a relationship with God. When I sin, my relationship with God is not affected, just as if when my sins, my sons or daughters disrespect, daughter disrespects me or sins against me, I'm still their father and they're still my child. Nothing will say, nothing will change that, even with my adopted daughter, Joelle. My adopted daughter, Joelle, it is written, <laughs> she can never be disadopted. She can change her name. She can dye her hair blonde. Don't tell her I said that, right? <laughs> But guess what? She will always be a patent, even in her adoption. Relationship secure. But when we sin, do not mistake this. Whether it's your intimacy with Christ or mine, it hurts the, the fellowship, the intimacy. And the more I sin, the less I want to be intimate with God. <laughs> That is a modern day. That's where we live as Christ's followers since Christ has come. So here they have religiously, economically, and militarily conformed to the world. They have exalted themselves versus exalting God. They are so full. That's what this text says. The word full or fulfilled four times. They are so full of themselves. They are empty of God. Human pride, one writer put, is the great impediment to the world as it should be. Human pride, I wrote, I'll quote myself this morning, is the kryptonite of our ability to place our hope in God. Human pride is the root of our disconnect from deep intimacy with God. So we go back to Genesis 3. And in this moment of stunning arrogance, Adam and Eve rejected God's wisdom. And we all have been affected by that. One writer I read years ago said, Eve bit the apple and our teeth, all of our teeth have ached since. So when our pride causes us to place our trust in idols instead of God himself, we do so because idols, we need to understand our hearts, they give us this sense of control. That anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. Idols control us since we feel we must have them. Our life is meaningless. And whatever controls us is our Lord. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. Our looks, our perfectionism, our workaholism, whatever we numb the pain in life with, whatever is our go-to for some relief of navigating this broken world becomes our functioning God. 
And I have good news and bad news for you. Every one of our hearts is filled with a thousand idols. And when you cut them out, Luther said, our hearts are an idol factory and they keep right on making new ones. That's the bad news. The good news is it takes a lifetime to root out the idols of our heart. And that's what growth in Christ means. And you and I are all in the same process of growing and changing. We say at Fellowship that life change is a way of life. So don't let your own sin and idol worship surprise you. That's even prideful there. How could I have done that? Really? Embrace the reality of who you are in the process to become more godlike. Transform the image of Christ. It is why humility before God causes us to acknowledge our need and then daily turn from him from our ultimate hope. Why is it so crucial? That's why humility and true biblical hope and trust in God go together. It is the prideful man who doesn't trust in God but trusts in himself and other things that he creates. So, what is the process of finding our way back when, not if, we lose our way? That's the key question that Isaiah presents here. And to do that, we need to look at verses 10 through 21. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. And just for you biblical non-scholars, that's not Lebanon, Tennessee, okay? (laughs) And against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against the hills and uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idol shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he arises to testify the earth or terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. There's a lot there. But Isaiah is telling us the only way back. I wish there were another way. There's not. Isaiah confirms it. The whole scripture confirms it. The only way back to the hope that matters, walking obediently in the light of the Lord when we stray, 
is God stripping us of all that we have trusted in except him. It is God bringing us low so the Lord can be lifted high in our hearts. Another word, modern word we would use is broken. We say here at Fellowship, we are a broken but hopeful what people. John Calvin put it this way. He says, to be broken is the beginning of hope and spiritual revival. <laughs> it is painful. It is humiliating. But it is the only way back to intimacy with our Father. And I just want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been sick on your stomach and about to throw up? You ever been there? And it's building. And you feel terrible. And you break out in a sweat. And there's nausea and pain. And as soon as you throw up, what happens? There you go. I, let, I gave him a $100 bill to say that. He's a plant, right? As soon as you happen, you, you feel better. As soon as we humble ourselves for the Lord, <laughs> like our sin builds up, and as soon as we say, yes, I did it. I'm prideful. I confess. There's something... Tears cleanse us. We feel that, do we not? That's that stripping. It's painful, but it's beautiful. The pride we saw in verses 2, 6 through 9 is this universal disease. And the only outcome for the people of God when they walk in pridefulness is a confrontation with God. And in verses 10 and 11, Isaiah puts it this way. Men will hide in the dust from the splendor of his majesty, and only the Lord will be exalted. That day speaks of the day when the Lord would return to destroy all of God's people, his people's enemies. But the truth of the matter, Isaiah is saying here that the people of Judah, the very people of God, they deserve judgment just as much as the enemies of God because they're living like their enemies. I think we do well to continue to ponder how excited we get about the return of Christ. Because I think we fail to say, he's coming back one day, therefore we submit our lives to the one who's coming back. We talk about it, but then live indifference to it. That's what Isaiah is saying here. God breaks our pride in order to break our hearts. So we'd be overwhelmed with his mercy to us in the death of his son. And in doing so, what happens is God, when he strips us, breaks our pride to break our hearts, <laughs> he, he returns things to proper order. Man is humbled and God is exalted. Man is brought low God is lifted high. Broken man is a good thing because only, because only when man is broken can he, God, begin to remake him into he, what he was intended to be. Brokenness is the way of God or the way back to intimacy with God. Verses 12 through 18 says, On that day, God will strip man of all that he has trusted in. That's the day, that's what he wants to do in all of our hearts. And here Isaiah paints this picture. He uses this uh, phrase against seven times.
times. Repetition in the study of Scripture is a big red flag to us to say, I'm trying to say something here, get it. I'm going to strip you, he says, against all who, I'm going to be against or strip the proud and lofty, against all that has been lifted up that was not God, against the cedars and the oaks. You think, well, what does God have to do? Why is he against trees? Because the cedars and the oaks of Bashan, the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan was a symbol of significance, economic significance. It said you were somebody if you walk in your house and your house is paneled with the cedars of Lebanon. Don't get your worth and what your house looks like. That's what Isaiah is saying here with the trees. Against the mountains. Why would he be against the mountains? Why would he strip that away when he made the mountains? It's because humans have worshipped the creation, not the creator. He says against the hills, same thing. Against the high towers and walls of protection, meaning everything that you've built to give you this false sense of security, I'm going to wipe it away. So you'll find your security in me. Against the ships of Tarshish. Tarshish was known for this great cargo shipping port. But also it had ships there much like the love boat or a pleasure cruise. And so God says all that man esteems and values and gets his identity from. Not that having those things are bad, but when we begin to get our identity and worth from them, God says, I'm going to destroy so that his people see that God is the only thing that is worth their hearts. They don't satisfy and I can satisfy, says the Holy One of Israel. I love verses 19 and 20. It says, on this day, or when God's, when God's people clearly see God for who he is and the splendor of his majesty, it uses this phrase twice, when he rises, when he rises from his throne. That's all it takes to send an earthquake and bring terror to the people. When, when they get the difference of worshiping the real God and the man-made God, here's the implication. Here's what will happen to them and to us. Verse 20 tells us, In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves. How pleasurable. How beautiful. How enjoyable is it for God to strip you of what got your identity, show you his worth, and you take that idol and throw it out. The pain of God's people being stripped of their idols is worth it so much that they're willing to throw away all they've worshipped in order to reconnect with their creator. Brokenness is the way back to the only hope that matters. Here's how Jesus' half-brother, James, put it in James 4, 8 through 10. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself. Embrace the, broken way, the way of brokenness. Humble yourself. In the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up.
Here's what our Christian culture does. Go into your local Christian bookstore and ask, I'd like your number one bestseller on lamenting and mourning and weeping. Can't find it. But go find something about your self-esteem. It'll be there. You have a lot of choices. The way of brokenness is antithetical or opposite to pride. And I think sometimes the church has done a poor job of describing pride in the sense that we're thinking, well, I'm not your classic, by definition, narcissist, whatever that is. We typically are aware enough where we don't pound our chest and do a dab and, you know, like, like we stay away from some of those things, even though we may feel them inside. And so it's sort of hard for us to go, well, I'm not really prideful. And yet the root of every one of our sins is pride. That's it. If you want to go all the way to the tip of the tail, that's where you start with, because that's where it started with Adam and Eve in the garden. Even before that, while Satan became Satan. Google that and find some stuff. So what I want to do this morning, in light of pride and being an impediment or obstacle to true hope in God and humility being the way to have hope and trust and intimacy with God, I want to I want to give you some very practical thoughts that I got in a book 20 years ago called Brokenness by a lady named Nancy Lee DeMoss. And so I want you to pick one of these. I think I, I, there's about 50 in her book, but in these 10, I think you can find at least one that applies to you. Proud people have a critical, fault-finding spirit. They look at everyone else's sin with a microscope, but view their own with a telescope. Broken people, however, are compassionate. They have the kind of love that overlooks a multitude of sins. They can forgive much because they know how much they've been forgiven. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. Broken people have a dependent spirit. They recognize their need for God and biblical community. Proud people have to prove that they are right. They have to have the last word. Broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. Proud people desire to be known as a success. Broken people are motivated to be faithful and to make others successful. Proud people are elated by praise and deflated by criticism. Broken people know that any praise of their accomplishments belongs to the Lord and that criticism can help them grow into spiritual maturity. Proud people feel confident in how much they know. Broken people are humble by how very much they have to learn. Proud people are concerned about appearing respectable. They are driven to protect their image and reputation at all costs. Broken people are concerned with being real. They care less about what others think than about what God already knows. Proud people keep others at arm's length. Broken people are willing to take the risk of getting close to others and loving intimately. 
Proud people find it difficult to discuss their spiritual needs with others. Broken people are willing to be open and transparent with others as God directs. Proud people want to be sure that no one finds out when they've sinned. Their instinct is to cover up and hide it. Broken people are not overly concerned with who knows or who finds out about their sin because they're willing to be exposed because they have nothing to lose in the love of their Savior. Proud people compare themselves with others and feel worthy of respect. Broken people compare themselves with the holiness of God and feel a desperate need for his mercy. There's a definite correlation between hope and humility. We trust the Lord well with the hope that only matters. It's the only thing that matters to walk obediently in his light when we are most humble, biblically humble. So take a minute this morning to ask the question, so what?